A young woman living in a mean town called Nazareth had just received the most unimaginable, the most humanly impossible news. Even though she was a virgin, by way of the Holy Spirit, she would conceive and bear a son. And his name shall be called Yeshua, Jesus. The Lord is salvation. And he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And he will be the Messiah who will be given the forever throne of David. And Mary responded to the angel Gabriel who brought the news with absolute faith and determined obedience. And she said to the angel, Behold, I am the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. I want to think a moment again about what Mary's obedience could potentially cost her. She was betrothed, as you know, to a carpenter named Joseph. The betrothal period lasted a year and could only be broken by divorce. If the bride was found guilty of infidelity, she could be stoned to death. Mary's reputation in the community would be damaged beyond repair. What would her parents think? How would they treat her? What would Joseph think and how would he treat her? What would Mary's relationship with Joseph and her family be from here on out? You see, Mary could no longer think of a normal, typical family life with Joseph and the kids and two dogs and a cat or whatever, whatever we think of a typical life. And she would be thinking that even if Joseph hangs in there with her, even if he understands this, they were going to rear the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And all of this hits on a basic spiritual principle. Obedience in the Lord always costs something. Our obedience always has a cost. Often it costs a great deal. Over the centuries, it has cost hundreds of thousands of people their very lives. Over 100,000 people a year in this world, and this was before ISIS, and nobody's keeping track anymore of what's going on in some of these countries. Over 100,000 Christians died on account of their faith every year in our world. It's because we live in a corrupted and fallen world, a world that is controlled and dominated in all its systems by the God of this age, Satan, who wants to destroy God and everybody who claims to God. There's always a cost. There's always a price for believing in God's word, and very often there's a severe cost for doing God's will. When Joseph and Mary presented the infant Jesus in the temple on the eighth day after his birth, the aged Simeon took the baby into his arms. And I like the way one pastor put it so we can kind of see the picture here. There was old Simeon taking the baby in his arm, kissing all the babies, blessing all the mothers, and he blessed Mary and said to her, a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary, your absolute faith in God's word, your resolute obedience to God's will will result in a sword piercing your own soul. And you know that she will witness the horrifying death of Jesus on the cross. Mary, did you know? Did you know that the road ahead would be that uncertain, that it was fraught with danger? In her humility, she knew, this is what she did know, she knew she didn't have what it takes. She knew she didn't have what it takes. It's the cost of discipleship, the cost of believing God's word and the cost of doing God's will, that obeying God's word is always difficult. Yet we have a tendency to look for the easy road, don't we? 
We often forget that obeying the Word of God is hard. It takes effort and struggle. It takes sacrifice. It requires spiritual exertion. The Apostle Paul told his son in the faith, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And as some of you may know, that word translated discipline is gumnazo. We get the word gymnasium from it. Go, exercise, go to the gym. Godliness requires effort and discipline, working out your faith. We don't work for our own salvation, but living the life of faith takes exertion. All you have to do is look around. If that were not true, you'd see a whole lot more people believing God's word and obeying him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. Years later, after writing those words, Patrick Bonhoeffer ultimately paid the cost of discipleship when he was executed by the Nazis just two weeks before the end of World War II. Many who start to follow Jesus turn back at the first signs of difficulty. After Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds followed him around and they demanded that Jesus do more miracles, show us a sign, do another miracle. And Luke says they, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. Take him by force and make him king. And that, that's quite a deal. A king who will do everything for you, but will not demand anything of you. And of course, you know, here in the United States, that gets people elected every four years. They make all these promises and they don't demand anything of the citizens. We have to go back to JFK, I think, before go back to a time when we really lived up to our responsibility. And Jesus turned on his heels and said to this crowd, crowd who are demanding to me, that demanding that he be their king, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Jesus delineated the demanding requirements of discipleship, that to follow him we must fully appropriate him, all that he is, all that he has done. All that he requires of us. Jesus said, count the cost. And on account of Jesus' words, the fickle crowd scattered. They said, this is too hard. Who can listen to this? And it says, even many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And all that were left standing there were the 12 disciples. And Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and the rest of the twelve had given up everything to follow Jesus, everything. They had no place else to go. We have believed, declared Peter. We believe God's word. We believe that you are the Holy One of God. We have counted the cost, and much of that cost we've already paid and we are resolute in our faithful obedience to you. In other words, it's going to be a hard road for the disciples. Back in Nazareth some 30 years before, it was going to be a hard road for a young woman named Mary. Yet, as we are going to see in Luke's gospel, God did not leave Mary to walk that road alone. In, in no way. 
God knew that trusting him and obeying him would bring Mary difficulty. And it was going to be especially hard for Mary. This was a brand new thing. Virgin birth? What are you talking about? You know, find some better excuse that people might actually believe. She's going to need a lot of assurance and she's going to need a lot of confirmation along the way. And the Lord knows that it's impossible without him. And so we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Gabriel immediately assures Mary as soon as he gives her the news. So please turn to the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 1, at verse 34 this time, the 34th verse. After receiving the good news that Mary will bear the Son of God, verse 34 of Luke chapter 1 gives her response. 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And now how, notice how Gabriel reassures Mary. Your cousin Elizabeth, he says, is also miraculously with child. Verse 36. And behold, even your relative, her cousin Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. This is going to be hard for Mary. But God, with whom nothing is an impossible, is going to be in it. He's going to confirm it, and he's going to do it. And along the way, he's going to give Mary confirmation and assurance in her humble obedience. Along with the greatest task that takes the most determined obedience comes the greatest joy and the greatest assurance and confirmation that this is of God and that he will perform it. So at verse 39, it says, now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. Mary could hardly wait to see Elizabeth. Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in a small town called Ein Kerem. Ein Kerem. It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. It would have been about a 120-mile journey from Nazareth to Ein Kerem. In fact, it would be much the same journey that later Joseph and Mary, while she's pregnant, will make the same trip. Because you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Bethlehem, you hang a left and go about five or six miles to Bethlehem. If you want to go to Ein Kerem, where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived, you just go about five miles south of there. Both are in the hill country of Judea. Now, we're not given the details about how this young woman traveled or how she got there, or what her, she told her parents before she left. She probably traveled with family or a caravan of some kind for, for her safety, but she, she left immediately in a hurry to go to the hill country of Judah. She could not wait to see Elizabeth and see for herself concerning the news that the angel gave her. You see, the Lord knew that Mary needed someone who fully understood all of this understood what she was going through and what she would go through, and fully understood the Lord's will in all of this. We all need somebody like that, don't we? In verse 40, Mary entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Talk about confirmation. The angel told Zacharias, Elizabeth's husband, 
that his son John would be filled with the Holy Spirit while even in Elizabeth's womb. He'd be filled with the John the Baptist, would be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. And, and the sense here is that even before Elizabeth could extend a formal greeting to Mary, the Holy Spirit filled the boy in the womb. He leaped for joy. And the word leaped here means to skip. This is not just the, the standard knocking around that moms talk about with the baby in the womb. This is a womb. <laughs> you know, he, he, he skipped, he jumped, he, he leaped. It's used of a sheep who leaps in a pasture. In verse 24, or 42 rather, And Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Here's the wonderful thing when it comes to this unborn baby's leap for joy. It tells us, it shows us that John was an emotional being while even in his mother's womb. He had the capacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This is incontrovertible testimony to the pre-birth personhood of John the Baptist. The personhood of every baby in the mother's womb. John, at the sixth month, he'd been about nine inches long. He would have looked like a newborn, weighed about one and one-half pounds. His skin would have been translucent at this point. He'd already be opening his eyes and staring into the dark safety of his mother's womb. He had fingerprints and toe prints. You know, this is a sobering thought for those who had countenance abortion. Plus, this is John's first prophetic act as the forerunner of the Messiah. Six months along in the womb, he's already doing what God called him to do. He announces the coming of the Messiah. Thirty years later, John will see Jesus walking along and announce, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here John leaps for joy in his mother's womb because that's about all he can do at this point physically. But this is John's first prophecy. This is his first prophecy as a prophet of God. By way of the Holy Spirit, the unborn John knows and experiences that he is in the presence of the Son of God. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And here is the wondrous confirmation that Mary needs. Verse 42 again. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among woman, women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You know, Mary, as she's approaching Elizabeth, you know, Mary would not even be close to showing that she was pregnant yet. Not even close. And Mary would have fully understood that only the Holy Spirit of God could have revealed this to Elizabeth. Clear confirmation for Mary that what Gabriel had told her was true. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is the Savior of God. Everything that the angel had told Mary was confirmed by Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And not only what the angel had said to Elizabeth, for Elizabeth, as Mary looked at Elizabeth, Elizabeth was clearly pregnant, six months along, as the angel said she would be. But without any physical evidence whatsoever, Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant. And she even knew by way of the Holy Spirit whom the child is. 
that is in Mary's womb. In verse 43, Elizabeth cries out with a loud voice, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The mother of my Lord. Mary's heart would have been elevated at this point. That 120-mile journey, you know, how much of this is true? You know, she would have had those nights on, on the journey, you know, in the dark loneliness of some of those nights thinking, well, maybe I misunderstood the angel. Maybe, what was that? Could it have been a dream? You know, that was several days ago, and now I'm doing this stupid trip going down to, to Judea, and nobody understood why I was going, and I couldn't tell anybody. And, and yet here, without any explanation, without any conversation whatsoever, Elizabeth understood Mary's secret and celebrated it by pronouncing a double blessing unto Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Elizabeth concludes her cries with a formal beatitude in verse 45. And blessed is she, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by her Lord. A couple of years ago, I talked about Zacharias from this text. You know, this would have been one of those ouch moments for Zacharias, Elizabeth's husband. When Mary came into the house, Zacharias would have been there as well. You remember in the temple six months before, he did not believe the fulfillment which had been spoken to him by the Lord. And so Zacharias was struck mute on account of his unbelief and deaf. Mute and deaf. Some say he was even deaf, but at least mute. He had six months to think about what it means to not believe the promises of God. Every day he could see his wife Elizabeth, see her joy, her wonder. She, she's getting bigger with her, her pregnancy, and Zacharias still can't express any of that. You see, Zacharias knew what it was like to experience the curse of God on behalf of unbelief. And standing next to Elizabeth, he would hear Elizabeth cry out, Blessed is she who believed, Zacharias, believed what would be the fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. I can almost hear Elizabeth saying to her husband, See, Zacharias, that's what I've been trying to tell you these last six months. Obey, Zacharias. Do you understand it now? Well, next Sunday, we're going to be looking at Mary's joyous song of faith in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56, the psalm of Mary, which is called the Magnificat. But for the rest of the time this morning, I want us to think about Mary's faith for a little while, to get a hold of that kind of faith. I want us to get a hold of the kind of faith that is required for which God gives us assurance, God gives us confirmation. And to do this, we must understand that faith is more than intellectual belief. Faith is more than an intellectual assent to God and his word. And faith is this. Faith is belief plus trust. Faith is belief plus trust. In understanding this, we see a pattern in Mary's celebrated faith. First, she did intellectually believe. She believed with her mind the word of God as Gabriel brought it to her. She believed that the, the virgin birth was possible and that it would happen. She didn't doubt that for a moment. 
But lots of people make mental assent to the word of God. They say they believe the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They believe the deity of Christ, that the Bible is God's word. They even believe that they are sinners and that their only hope is in Christ. But then they go on to live hopeless lives without Christ. Why is that? Because the question is, have they put their trust in what they believe? Faith is belief plus trust. Mary did not doubt, but she also trusted her whole life to the promise of God. Mary said to the angel, may it be done to me according to your word. Mary trusted her whole life to this. There, there was none of this, well, we'll see how it goes, but you know, at the first sign of difficulty that I say this thing, this Christian thing is really not working out, you know, I, I'll forget that. Well, I'll just take it one step at a time. I'll give it a whirl, at least until it's inconvenient. And besides, I believe the right stuff. I don't have to trust it, do I? But the question is, if you believe, if you have given mental assent to it, have you trusted in Christ and in Christ alone? Have you rested everything on him for your salvation? Do you believe that you are a sinner and your only hope is in Christ? Then have you put your complete trust in him? Saving faith is belief plus trust. I'm going to give you an example, an illustration that I've used before, and then I'm going to give you a little bit different one that I think explains it even better. So let me give you a simple example first. Right down here, there's a red chair, and there's a hymn book sitting on it. That's the hymn book I use on a, on a Sunday morning. Not the same hymn book every Sunday morning. I think it changes. It does. <laughs> but, but I believe that is a chair. I believe that is a, a red chair. And I believe if I sit on that chair, it will hold me up. But that's still not saving faith. Just believing that if I sit on that chair, it will hold me up. It becomes saving faith when I fully trust that chair by sitting down and putting my full weight upon it. And as I was thinking about this illustration, I thought of one that might hit a little bit closer to home from some of you. Some of you have been to the glass floor at the Sears Tower in Chicago, right? The Wana kids have been there. Steve's been there. I know how Steve feels about it. <laughs> so I might pick on him a little bit. 103 stories up, there is these jutting glass cages that stick out with glass floor, glass sides, and you look down, 103 stories down, 1,350 feet or more, and you look down that. A couple of years ago, the glass floor in one of these cracked. We were told that's not a problem. <laughs> you believe that there's a glass floor 103 stories up. You have heard that it holds people up and that a crack is not a problem, but you don't trust it. You're not going to put your full weight on it. You're not going to rest on it, are you? And, and on Facebook and on the internet recently, there, there's been some of these pictures. That, I think it's a place in China or someplace in the Far East where there's this glass walkway that 
goes across this deep cavern. And, and you watch these people once they get out there and then they panic. They go flat on their faces and, and they just can't move. They're, they're frozen to death. And, and, and people have to come out and drag them back off of that. They, they, can't, they can't do anything. But when you fully rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you put your full trust on him. Your full trust for, your, for the rest of your life, that is saving faith. There's no do the hokey pokey here. I'm going to put one foot in, I'm going to take one foot out, and I'm going to put another foot in. You totally, fully rest in the work of Jesus Christ. Because saving faith also produces a remarkable passivity. A resting in the object of your faith. It produces a wondrous negation of all activity to save ourselves. Mary fully submitted to the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. You see, saving faith produces a calm reliance. You stop seeking God's approval or response to his works. You stop trying to impress God with the good things you can do and a hapless attempt to make up for the bad things. You, you trust and fully rely on the words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Mary was able to fully rest both on the word and promises of God and the works of God to accomplish his good favor. And lastly, out of her passivity sprang an energized activity. She immediately and without question obeyed God's word. Immediately went down to the hill country of Judah, Judea and Judah. She exhibited a faith that does work. Because if it is true saving faith, that faith will work. And so it resulted in a humble service and discipleship where through Christ she was able to pay the cost of discipleship. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, even at a young age, modeled faith for the church. She exhibited faith that realized the birth of Christ in her life that fostered her discipleship. Because saving faith is belief plus trust that issues a proper passivity leading to total dependence upon Christ and then it flames into activity producing a life of service. That is saving faith. But wait, there is more. We're not done yet. Because we're begging the question as to why so many people who claim to faith lack assurance. And they lack confirmation in their faith. Where is the assurance? Where is the, the confirmation that we all need? And why are so few Christians in our cultural culture really willing to obey Christ, willing to pay the cost of discipleship? Why do they cut and run so easily? And, and I can say, do I dare meddle at this point? Sometimes preaching is meddling. Why are so few truly committed to Jesus Christ? And the answer is God's care for Mary. The answer is God's care for Mary in giving her Elizabeth. Young Mary could share what, uh, what Gabriel told her. She could tell other people what the angels said. But, but she could not be expected to fully understand or articulate the mystery until she went to see Elizabeth. God had prepared Elizabeth by her priestly husband's dramatic experience with Gabriel in the temple six months before, 
And during that six months before Mary's arrival, Zacharias, no doubt, even though he couldn't speak, would have been searching the scriptures. He was a man of God. He was a godly man. He would have been looking for the answers, and he would have been writing down some of this and communicating it with Elizabeth. And so their isolation in the hill country would have fostered their meditation and study of God's word. They would have been seeking the scriptures. What is this all about? Going back to all the Old Testament scriptures about the coming of the Messiah and, and the forerunner. Lots of good stuff there. <laughs> That's a good study. And, and Elizabeth's profound belief at what had happened in Mary's womb, her double blessing of Mary, her acknowledgement that Mary was indeed carrying the Lord, her beatitude regarding Mary's faith, her, her filling by the Holy Spirit, all of this was a tender balm and confirmation for Mary's soul and faith. To put it shortly and simply, God had given Mary a godly woman as her closest friend and confidant during this formative times, formative time in her life and in her spiritual life. Why are so few truly committed to Christ because in some regard, they isolate themselves from their brothers and sisters in Christ, from the church. They isolate themselves from the community of faith. So as one person put it, as Mary hurried to the hill country, we must fly to the church because it is there that we find people like Zacharias and Elizabeth. We must fly to the church because that's where we're going to find the Zacharias and Elizabeth that God's going to use to bring us confirmation. In Christ's church, we find people who share a mutual faith. It is here that we find people who share a mutual commitment to Jesus Christ and a, a commitment to the cost of discipleship. Mary's faith, as great as it was, most likely would have faltered if not for Elizabeth and not for that home where she fellowshiped with Elizabeth and Zacharias. The same is true for each one of us and and every person that we invite to, to receive Christ or to know him better, we must purposefully place ourselves deep within the fellowship of the church, deep within the fellowship of those who believe God's word, deep within the fellowship where we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, deep within the fellowship where when one member suffers, we all suffer. Deep within the fellowship where we share the miraculous new life we have within us in Christ. Deep within the fellowship where we share a mutual commitment to be the body of Christ that meets in this place for the sake of a dead and dying world. Deep within the fellowship where we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Deep within the fellowship where each one of us use our spiritual gifts for the common good of the body of Christ. And deep within the fellowship where we experience that resonance of soul that comes from a mutual experience of Jesus Christ. And deep within the fellowship because here we experience elevation and fulfillment of our new birth. Like Mary was to Elizabeth, may the Lord make this church, make Grace Baptist Church to be God's gift to you and to others who experience the new birth through Jesus Christ. And may they be blessed of the Lord, and may they grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we experience the deep fellowship of mutual love and care that the Lord has for us in this place and in this fellowship.
Take out your list again. The violet sheet. Let's close with a very personal application. You all are God's gift to the people who are listed on this sheet. Among others that you know in our community and other places. These are people we want to keep deep within the fellowship of Grace Baptist Church. So as you you read this list and you pray about it and you you think about it, not only commit yourself to be deep within the fellowship of, of our church, but that you will help others who, for whatever reason, cannot be deep within the fellowship because they're not with us here on a Sunday morning, to be deep within our fellowship. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for our fellowship here at Grace Baptist Church, Lord. I thank you for the, the buzz and the noise during our greeting time. I thank you for the same thing as people fellowship after the service, Lord, and, and in the many ways that we get together as Grace Baptist Church, Lord. It is such a blessing, such a pleasure to be part of, of this fellowship, Father. And I pray that you would use us in this fellowship to draw others into a a saving faith of Jesus Christ. That they might put their full weight and rest completely on the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray that it would be used of you to draw those who, who need a greater and a deeper commitment to our Savior. Father, I thank you that in the same way that you chose a humble woman, young woman named Mary so long ago, Father, that I thank you that you have chosen each one of us according to your purposes and according to your will. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.